You're listening to Data Plus Love. I'm your host, Zach Bowders, and I'm here this week with Stephen Shoemaker. Stephen is a co-lead of the North Texas User Group. Uh, he works at WeWork and is a U.S. Navy veteran. But if you've seen his Tableau public portfolio, you will have seen some truly amazing, poppy, bright, colorful, and I would say highly geographic visits. Stephen, how are you this evening? I'm doing well, Zach. How are you? I'm doing great. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast uh, because you and I have a connection uh, beyond just seeing each other on Tableau Public and on Twitter. Uh, and that's you and I have been paired up through Mentoring Meetup. Uh, Mentoring Meetup, if you don't know, is an opportunity for people to sort of put themselves out there and say, I'm interested in mentoring or being mentored. And it finds matches and helps people get together. So I volunteered this time to be a mentor, which is a new experience to me. And Stephen volunteered to be a mentee. And uh, it was kismet. We got matched together. And I was, I don't know about you. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. And if my reaction is bigger than yours, that's okay. But I was so excited to be paired with Stephen because I had already been admiring his work. And I was actually just telling Stephen this right before we're talking right now. But I don't really know what I can do for him in terms of data visualization because Stephen is freaking amazing. Um, he came in so fully formed from his per first public visualization. Uh, that it's only gotten better. Um, tell me about sort of you and uh, mentoring. Zach, first of all, thank you for letting me be on the podcast. It's it's awesome to be here. And uh, I'm excited to be your mentee. Um, honestly, I had the, pretty much the same reaction because like when we when I saw the mentoring meetup, I, I thought to myself like, hey, it's to be cool. There's so many great people in the Tableau community that like I honestly would have been happy to be matched up with anyone. But like, for me, I saw you as like super visible in the community and I love the thing that you're doing. I also saw you as kind of like a lightning rod for a lot of people. I, you were some of the first like pre person who liked my visits. Um, when I started posting, you were commenting, um, you were always kind of like a big cheerleader in the community and some, and that's something. That I really appreciate that. And I hadn't really sort of articulated what my sort of, I call them prime directives like Robo Robocop were until recently, but from sort of early on in my Tableau public experience and more than that sort of Twitter involvement with a larger data community, I knew that one of the things that I could be was a cheerleader. And I use the exact same term um, because I am never going to be like the best at any given thing. There are some people that are amazing technically. Like we saw some stuff drop earlier today from uh, two of last year's Iron Viz winners. They worked together on this amazing Ben and Jerry's Viz. That's I think it's got some Ultrics in it. It's got some Tableau in it. It's truly stunning and phenomenal. And I'm like, I don't have that in me. And then I, and then I see it's, a, it's amazing, really. <laughs> it's crazy. It's I, I was just looking at it. I must have scrolled through it a half dozen times. I'm like, wow. Well, I'm not yeah. making that. <laughs> I um when I first saw it this morning actually um me and uh JR JR Kubroros well stumbling on his last name I'm sorry JR um so he and I were talking this morning we were talking about that viz actually and he and I were both like wow mind freaking blown because you know D3 these kind of technologies and they actually put it in the footer like they use this as a project to learn a lot about those technologies and and that's something I'm super interested in so when I saw someone from the community who I traditionally really knew like in terms of Tableau go out and just knock it out of the freaking park like that it was honestly mind-blowing and inspiring I get it's amazing I mean it is amazing and I think that's one of the cool things like 
while most of the people I have on this podcast, I know through Tableau as a tool, very few people are like a single tool user. Like I'm picking up Ultrix at work now. I know a lot of people use D3. Um, I know a lot of people use graphic design software like Figma or even uh, PowerPoint to incorporate in. So like even beyond that, like very few people are doing stuff purely in a single tool. And that's fine because what you are is you're a data visualization person. You're not necessarily strictly a Tableau person. Tableau just might be your favorite paintbrush. Um, and it's a great paintbrush. I love it. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm a Tableau ambassador. And for uh, for good reason, because like I, I seriously um, have gone like all in. I'm 140 something visualizations deep and no sign of stopping. But yeah, it's it's really fun to just sort of be able to see what other people can do when they fold in that extra like layer of something that you you didn't know is possible. And it's great because like once you see one thing like that, you know, other people are going to pick up learnings from that and it's going to push the entire medium further. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you said it's a data visualization community. And that's, I guess that's why it's hashtag uh, data fam, you know, it's um, tool agnostic. And so it is great to see people when they step out of like the, everyone seems to have like their, you know, you in your tool set, you'll have your favorite hammer or maybe your favorite. Um, I feel like everyone kind of has those prefer, but it's awesome being part of that community and seeing people experiment. They're going out of their way to create new things and challenging themselves. And it's great to see people's progression and people who you admire see them get even better and better. So I, I love that aspect. Absolutely. So I've got to ask you, um, looking through your portfolio, which I do before I talk to everyone uh, on this podcast, whether if you're a podcaster or, or whatever, I go find your website, I look at your Tableau portfolio, I pull out some favorite stuff. I notice you're heavy into geography. Um, I also know that you previously served in the Navy and you probably did a bit of traveling. Is there a connection between any of this or are you just a geography guy? You know, in the Navy, um, what I did was I was an imagery analyst. So my job actually was to look at satellite imagery, work with geography. Um, primarily, what I did was identify, you know, planes, tanks, automobiles. Um, but when you look at geography like that, where you're coming from an analyst lens, I always found it like strikingly beautiful because we would have these high resolution images that we were able to, to look at. And when I did that, I would Honestly, I would try and see if I could find places I knew or mountain ranges or anything that I could look at that would just be beautiful. And when I did that, I just fell in love with geography. And then when you start adding in that layer of like data is where you're seeing something and you're able to visualize something um, in that way. It, there's just something that I, I loved about it. And I think it really does come from that imagery analyst. I mean, everything starts somewhere, right? Like I think for me, my whole data journey began well before I was even out of college and when I read the first Freakonomics book. I uh, I read that back in the day and I was sort of fascinated. It's not a book I ever would have picked up. I've always been into sort of novels and fiction and that was my first foray into something beyond that. My dad was kind of like, you've got to read this book, you'd like it. And I'm like, whatever, old man. So I, uh, <laughs> I, read, I read it and uh, I was fascinated by it because it takes, uh, you know, analytical concepts and applies them in in sort of unexpected ways so there are stories in there about how they're able to discern when sumo wrestlers are throwing matches or when public school teachers are giving their students the answers on tests or even like uh in sort of a drug ring why why most people are still living with their moms like it, you know if there's so much money why is this happening so sort of breaking down these tough big ideas and sort of making them more consumable and even introducing fascinating uh economic concepts like the cobra effect which was uh 
I'm just going to go go out on this. But uh, when Britain sort of ruled over England, they were trying to implement economic policies to sort of encourage like greater participation in the empire. Like they 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 see this as like a positive thing. Like, hey, look, you know, we're all one big empire. We should all share in the economic greatness of of the the British Empire. So what if we like did something to like. Uh, clean up one of the local problems, but also encourage economic participation. So they came up with like essentially a cash for cobras thing. <laughs> so uh, there are too many cobras around. Cobras are bad and they kill people. We'll pay you to bring us dead cobras. And they're like, our work here is done. Uh, cobras start coming in. Uh, the British uh, Raj is feeling great about this until one day he's sort of traveling to the outskirts of the province. He's doing some some business travel and he sees cobra farms and he's like, ah, so they've created a perverse <laughs> economic incentive for people to now cultivate and farm their own cobras. It's like, OK, so cash for cobras is a bust. We, we've made people uh, breed cobras. We're canceling cash for cobras. <laughs> now cobras are a net liability. So everyone that has cobras is like, screw it. I'm letting these cobras go. And they have more cobras than they had initially. And it's an economic concept that sounds so silly and funny when you're talking about cobras. But you can see how this could play out in any number of human responses and behaviors. Because however you sort of stack the incentives for people to behave, you might accidentally encourage a net negative effect from what you tried to accomplish. And then when you try to roll back on that, you're worse than you even started. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you can incentivize people to really do anything. And um, that Cobra, I, I really like that you brought up Freakonomics because that was also something that I read. And I don't remember the Cobra story, but like hearing it now, I can totally see that. I mean, it's just so interesting. Like I, I know this Freakonomics, um, the Freakonomics book, as well as, um, I'm blanking on the name, as I told you earlier before the show, I'm a little bit forgetful. It's like XKD, XCKD. It's a, um, a database comic. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. I got to check it out. Well, and if I'm messing up the name, forgive me, but one of their comics, he, he goes through like a what if scenarios, like, hey, what if we threw a baseball at the speed of light? What would happen in, in that case? And actually takes that information and kind of like paints a story. Um, whereas like if you were to throw those numbers at me in general, like I would not be able to understand it. Um, and so in the same way that Freakonomics kind of teaches those economic concepts, I love those ways of packaging data and teaching people things um, without them realizing that they're really learning a lot. I mean, it, it's truly uh, the, the sugar that makes the medicine go down. And uh, I was fortunate enough, my first Tableau conference, uh, one of the keynotes was by Levitt and Dubner, who are the Freakonomics co-authors. And uh, they actually uh, did a Q&A, and one of the questions asked was, what's the uh, strangest thing that you guys ever investigated? And it involved uh, pet cremation, hmm. because someone like narked on pet crematoriums to them and was like, hey, look, they say there's three levels of service. There is the like, hey, we're cremating your pet with the roadkill or we're cremating your pet with a batch of other pets or or like the VIP exclusive treatment where your pet is cremated individually. So oh, they man. decided to test whether there was fraud in pet cremation by buying replica cats from Japan, because apparently this is a thing. There are replica cats that look just like a real cat with, with very real fur, but are hollow. And they stuffed them each with about eight pounds of ground beef and it took them to be cremated like at the VIP wow. level. And uh, every single time they received back an urn of ashes. And I'm sorry for anyone uh, freaked out <laughs> by the pet cremation thing. 
Yeah, uh, just plug your I, ears right now. Yeah, just it's too late for that now. Just go back and, and forget this happened. And, but every time they received ashes back, which would not have happened because the ashes that you receive from cremation are actually bones. So they're able mm-hmm. to substantiate that, yeah, there isn't, in, in fact, fraud in pet cremation. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, the, the, the level of deduction skill, actually, like I wouldn't. I think that I'm a pretty creative person, but if you were to ask me to investigate the same thing, I would not ever make the connection to getting a replica cat and stuffing it with ground beef. I mean, you also have other things to do. That's true. That's very true. S- someone has the time, and if if you do, I want to hear from you. Like, are you are you testing crematoriums to see if they're cremating your cat properly? Let me know. So you and I are both uh, involved in our local tugs. So you're in the North Texas tug, which I believe has both like Joey Ramos and Tim Caddy and some other folks out there. And I'm in the Memphis tug with David Kelly and Wendy Brotherton. I think we're actually, we're doing a little um, meet just the three of us tomorrow to talk about sort of the future of the tug. Mm -hmm. Because for us, our tug has been fairly new. We started um, about last January. So we had a good run. We had about a year. We had about six meetings because we were alternating by months. Then we obviously got whacked by COVID. And for our tug, as a sort of a newer fledgling tug, we haven't been doing the virtual thing. Because one of the big things for our tug was just getting people to show up. So we had about 20 people consistently. One time we had about 60. And that's when I got the uh, charity party guys to come because they're local. But um, beyond that, you know, that's sort of been the big thing. So for us, it didn't make a lot of sense to go full virtual because there's so many of like the bigger tugs that had like the cooler names and stuff doing virtual right now that why not just tune into that right now? What's your tug been doing uh, sort of during all this COVID nonsense? We've honestly just been completely virtual. And it's been great. I mean, we've had relatively good attendance uh, the entire time. I think, um, you know, working with Tim and Joey, like they got, they run such a tight ship and we just recently added Brandy to our team, but we, we run, they run such a tight ship that it makes it like a really great experience for our users. So, you know, we, we go in with our preamble um, and then we have the, the agenda structured out. Tim is posting both on Twitter and on LinkedIn. We're really trying to bring people together and um, we try to be flexible with the timing that we can get the highest level. And it's, and it, it seems to be work virtually. Um, now I know before um, Tim and Joey were doing in person and, you know, Right now, we think it's probably safer to continue to keep it full, but um, it seems to be working well, and our our attendees seem uh, very happy, so we're happy just people are showing up. That's great. And if you guys are ever interested in some virtual guests or whatever, uh, we we have uh, been thinking about experimenting that we've actually brought in, you know, people from out of town. We had Steve Wexler and Anna Ford come in town. Um, Anna came because Steve was going to be in town teaching. I asked them both if they would be inclined to come speak at the tug and the timing worked out and it was kind of excellent. So that's, that's a great way. And I imagine virtually as well, if there are people that, you know, you'd like to sort of participate in that um, it's probably a real easy way to get people involved. Um, yeah, that's really great. I'm glad it's working out so well for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to, it's, it's great. You know, I'm still a newbie on the team though. You know, it's really been Tim and Joey before him um, kicking it off and they've just been running it for, you know, I think years now. And so I'm just the new guy on the team and I'm really trying to learn how they've made it successful and kept it successful. Um, so learning from them and it's been great. So I'm, I'm happy I was able to. That's awesome. So one of the things I want to make sure to talk about is this week you dropped a viz that I particularly love. So topically it's fascinating and visually it's stunning. Uh, so this is your most recent viz, uh, Dallas and color. Would you mind yeah. uh, talking about that a little bit? Oh man. So it honestly came to me like, I was just thinking about it. So in, in Dallas, I live in um, the Southwest um, of Dallas and 
one of the things that I always notice about our neighborhood that there's a lot of gentrification that goes on. Um, and we live in an area called Oak Cliff. It's over by Bishop Arts, which is really like a keep it local type of area. Um, they don't allow chains. Um, most, it, they're really community folks. Morale around the community love it. Um, and then surrounding us is the Oak Cliff area, which is just a traditional old neighborhood in, in Dallas. Um, it's a Hispanic neighborhood primarily and has been for a, a very long time. Um, and for me, living in this area, I was just became fascinated by like, you know, when you go to a new city, people will say, hey, um, avoid this area of town, or they will talk about these kind of geographic kind of hotspots. You know, you have Chinatown and, and these kind of dispersions of ethnicity throughout the city that people sometimes label, right? Um, and for me, I was like, well, what does that look like? And what does it look like to have those people in Dallas? And what would that see? What would it be like to see that? Um, because, you know, you can feel it but I want to see it. And so I set out to try and do that. I mean, and it's stunning. You chose a primary color palette. It's sort of slightly, slightly off of like the traditional primary, like the blue and yellow really pop. And uh, it's amazing to sort of see the, um, I guess the ethnic dispersion across the geographic area as sort of this explosion of color. And it's fascinating to see the areas that are, are sort of much more diverse and sort of you just see it like a, a, a splatter versus a whole area that might uh, be mostly blue or mostly red. I know from my experience, I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and Memphis is an area that is mostly African-American or Caucasian. But the part of town I live in, I live out in one of the suburbs. We actually, most people don't expect this, have a very large East Asian population. And a lot of that comes from the fact that FedEx is based in Memphis, but their technology center is based in Collierville, where I live. So they have a very large East Asian population, a lot of whom used to live in the apartment complex just down the street. But now I live in a neighborhood a couple miles from there. And there's just a very large population that you might not have expected if you were sort of to just take it from the 10,000 foot view. But looking at this from the 10,000 foot view, it's just really fascinating to see how that really breaks down. Yeah, um, it's. I think that like when you put things in this kind of color and you kind of break it out into the smaller units and you can actually say, hey, this is a person, you start to see these patterns. And like, as you said, it would be interesting to look at, um, look at the city, like from that, this kind of view to see like, what does it look like to have an area that is, um, has a large East Asian population and is, um, you know, what does that look like from the top? Like, what does it, what does that appear like? Um, in Dallas, it's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to visualize it is I feel like that dispersion that you talk about where the areas are integrated are not really found in like Dallas proper. Um, in the map, you can see out further than Dallas. You start to see like our Arlington further than just the Dallas downtown. Um, when you look at just, just Dallas proper downtown, which is that nexus between those three points that I plot, um, there's an almost clear-cut line of like the areas of town which you know interestingly enough when i look at the historical redlining of dallas um these areas were called out as undesirable in uh the 1937 redlining uh, of dallas so we're holding on to some of these um the areas of town haven't changed much. It's really interesting. And one of the things that I think this viz does really effectively is oftentimes when you see viz around gender, 
Um, it's sort of encouraged to avoid using pink and blue sort of as the, you know, they're sort of the traditional go-tos, but they're sort of so coded in our minds that sort of breaking away from that and making different color choices can sort of free you up to look at the data more efficiently. And by using a choice to go with a color palette, that's just totally unconnected to any of the ethnicities in any way. I mean, there would be the temptation to sort of color this in a way that makes you think of Caucasians in this area or that. But by actually having to look at the color key, it it kind of removes some of your own biases of how you might view this on your own. Because one of the things that I, I mean, I am definitely no expert in, in dealing with biases, but um, watching last year's Fringe Festival, one of the speakers did a whole lecture on it. And it was fascinating talking about how at all aspects of the process, we're dealing with sort of various you know, inputs that people have put in on their own, whether they intended to or not, like how the data was collected in the first place, how we view it when we're analyzing it, how we put it on the page and create it. So always trying to sort of make it as neutral as you could possibly be, but at the same time, make it so it can say something and show what's happening. And I think you just did that so effectively with this viz that I know the response was just so positive on Tableau Public. Yeah, totally appreciate that. I, I mean, it was really conscious. Like, I I really feel, as you know, that there are these biases that will present when, and especially when you're thinking about like an ethnic um, group, you don't want to reinforce any stereotypes. You don't want to reinforce any by your, at least by your, any pre-existing biases that exist. Like you really want the data to be able to speak. And be, and so like, I intentionally try to choose a color palette or in those create and break away from the associations and sometimes choosing the opposite of what you might expect. Um, you know, initially when you're looking at like these cities and the unfortunate reality is I've seen many maps that have Asian populations mapped as yellow and uh, African-American populations mapped as red. And those color associations be so you have you have to be order to be ethical, be conscious. And I mean, it's we hold a certain sort of responsibility, but also a certain power. I mean, I think about the the world that we live in right now, how all of the stuff we consume is cultivated for us specifically to sort of reinforce our own points of view. So, you know, the presidential debate happened the other night. And no matter how anyone feels about that. What happened the next day is everyone went to the media sources that they always go to and had whatever they already felt about it reinforced. So if you're already in favor of one person or the other, if you thought it was going to be a mess or a, a success, that's what everyone still believes after the fact. So, I mean, as we sort of funnel our attention down into sort of a narrow and narrower scope, we all become more isolated from each other. We all become more disconnected from each other and each other's humanity. And it just sort of creates a, a worse society where the less you have to interact with people that aren't like you, you know, the 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 worse we all are, are all as people. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it, it's it's hugely important in both our discipline that we're making sure that we're ethical about the, the connections that we make, but then also in the way that we're consuming media or um, having our biases reinforced, we have to be open to connecting with those people who have those different biases and being able to come to the table and understand each other. Preach, brother. Uh, anyway, so going back to your portfolio, and that was an awkward transition. I'm off my game tonight. <laughs> it's okay. No worries. 
I'm being super candid. So I I started a new job this past week. I've previously worked at Alsac St. Jude Children's Research Hospital for the past 13 years. And uh, this past week, I've started at JLL, Jones Lang LaSalle, which um, many other sort of data fam community members work at, like Simon Beaumont and Fee Gordon and Paul Chapman. And it's uh, it's great. It's an amazing company and some amazing colleagues. But first weeks are always kind of overwhelming, just the flood of new information. So my brain is just sort of spinning each night as I come off this. So um, I'm excited to just really get, get going and hit get some traction but you know hr paperwork man hey man it's a necessary evil right (laughs) you gotta you gotta get paid you need that insurance (laughs) absolutely right so one of your other visits that i really like is sort of a viz after my own heart and a lot of the visits i've been trying to do for the better part of the past year is i've sort of tried to go simpler um, in the past, uh, especially early on in my public portfolio, it was more about, hey, let me show you all the stuff I can do. And then at a certain point, I, I realized I'd rather just make stuff that I, I would like to make. And oftentimes the stuff I'd like to make is stuff that's maybe simpler, maybe stuff that rather than trying to tell you five stories, tells you one story. And maybe it tells you that one story fairly succinctly, which often leads to a single chart or, you know, minimalist charts. So you have this great viz out there. It's the North Sea Crash. And um, I'm going to say that, and I hope you, t- you take this in the spirits intended, it reminds me a lot of Judith Becker's work mm. in the sense that she has a sort of very sparse, minimalist, poppy style and just amazing use of color and font. Um, this is a great viz. This viz would look good on like a poster on your wall. Um, what was the story behind this viz? Well, it's probably not surprising that you see some of you did kind of inspiration in this because she's a huge inspiration to me. So um, it's actually part, I would say almost 90% the reason I joined the Tableau community is because she did this viz um, that had a big blown out image uh, from Breaking Bad. Um, and I had seen Tableau. I'd seen it at work. I'd seen what it can, what it looked like. I was like, okay, cool. I know all there is to know about this program. I'm not even really interested in kind of like learning it. And then I stumble upon a Tableau public. I see that viz and I'm just like, how did she do that? To the point where I was like, and this is to me, I think there is a point where you just started um, putting in like the work and bringing uh, coming into the Tableau community a lot more. And her work, I think, spawned a ton of people and got a lot of people focused in like using those third party softwares to bring in images and thinking about layout um, in the in your visits. And so I was hugely inspired uh, by her in making um I mean, I'm not surprised. And I don't mean that in the copycat way. I mean that in that she's hugely inspirational. And I think I think everyone is that for somebody else. And I'm saying that looking at your work, I know you are going to be that for other people. Because, I mean, everyone saw something that made them think about data viz differently and said, oh, wait, you can do that? Because up until that point, especially if you've only sort of been exposed to stuff at work, you've kind of seen the same things over and over. You've seen like... You know, a million bar charts, a million line charts, usually with the stock colors. Sometimes someone got a little wacky and changed the colors up and it might not be the best choices. Uh, You'll see um, (laughs) you'll see a lot of packed bubbles that shouldn't have been packed bubbles and some highlight charts that maybe should have been something else. But um, and I mean, that's that's standard. Your your workplace might have amazing uh, charts and graphs, which hopefully they do. Uh, I'm fortunate now to see some of the stuff that my colleagues have put out there and realize, like, man, I need to up my game. But yeah, it's it's great to to sort of have that moment where you realize I didn't realize this could be so much more than what it is. And I think until that point, for most people, you're sort of 
kind of just using, you know, the sort of out of the box chart types. And there's nothing wrong with those. In fact, you can make incredible visas that are inspirational with them, but it's, it's all about the use. And like you're saying with a bunch of unit stuff, so many times she's not even choosing an exotic chart. It might be a bar chart, but it's the way she's used the bar chart and possibly folding it in with some other medium, using some really solid white space and maybe a really deliberate font choice. And all of a sudden that's transformed into something that catches your eye instead of something that you just scroll quickly past. I, and I love that it, not in just in Udit's work, but in so many others um, in the community, I think there's like incredibly creative people out there. Um, and what I love about Tableau is that you have these people who at work are making these amazing practical applications. And then you have individuals on the far end, other end of the spectrum who are just doing things to experiment and have fun. You have a data program where people can, you know, bring to life like a creative, funny viz that they they wanted to do. And at the same time, powerfully crunch data numbers and give decision-making insights. It's huge. And our Tableau community, like as you said, there's people who are making those wacky bar charts. But kind of like you said before, everyone has that person. It's like someone who didn't know you could even change the color very well uh, in Tableau, just learn something new. And then it builds on it, builds on it, and builds on it. And I mean, I think... So much of it is when you see so much good stuff, your stuff will automatically get better, even if you're, you are just doing business charts, because mm-hmm. it takes seeing so much good stuff to make good stuff yourself. Like until you know what's good, oftentimes you don't know what's not as good. And that's not to say that your your vanilla like bar chart was bad. Um, it's just that I've, I've seen people make fairly you know common mistakes uh, repeatedly. And until they've been exposed to enough work that is sort of more functional, they might not even realize that's a mistake because it's unless you're sort of in a coaching situation with someone and they're sort of ready to receive feedback, it's really difficult to say to someone, hey, I don't know if that's maybe the best choice for this, even when you're doing it as gently as possible, because people have to sort of like be in that learning and willing mindset. And if they are in that sort of relationship, that's great. But if they're not, it's going to take, you know, exposure. And I think exposure is so important. I think that's why having stuff like Tableau Public, having stuff like Viz of the Day, having like the Viz Gallery at the conference where they're pushing out some of like the really cool stuff out there gets people fired up. Yeah, it gets people excited because there's always going to be that aha moment where like I honestly think that, you know, as people see these visits and they can see like things that they can aspire to, they just naturally start to see, like you said, through repeated viewing, just start to, their mistakes will hopefully start to correct themselves. And especially if they open themselves up to feedback, it just creates, um, I think a level of connection, especially when you do open yourself up to say, Hey, does anyone have any thoughts of how I can improve? Um, and when people do that, I think it just makes them improve at 10 times speed. Totally. Like passion makes a huge difference. And like once mm-hmm. you sort of feel that energy, even if it's strictly for work product, you're going to be so much more engaged and you're going to deliver something that draws other people in. Because as part of being an analyst, you're also kind of like an evangelist and you're out there and you're trying to create enthusiasm for the data in a other group of people that may not necessarily be as enthusiastic about it. So you're trying to knock down that barrier. And sometimes it might be a little visual flair that takes something fairly mundane, pushes it just a little bit, and that's what makes the difference for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and going back to uh, your earlier point about like looking that sometimes you want to bring those simple forms um, to life that you said before, it's like, hey, let me just be a little bit more. Um, I kind of, I, I hate to say this, but 
my error, I try and err towards simplicity because I don't see, I'm not a very creative person. And I, I don't mean that to be like self-deprecating or anything like that. Um, but for me, um, my ideas come as I'm creating. And so oftentimes I'm looking at the work that I'm doing and I feel myself trying to keep things because it's the way that I understand. So what I'm trying to impart is I'm not always trying to shock or delight. I'm mostly trying to inform with my visualizations. And I feel that when I can create these simple and a little bit more minimalist visas that I'm able to get across the information um, that people need. And I don't want to bring a lot of cognitive load and burden. I think that's entirely valid and a totally Totally great choice. I mean, a lot of it comes down to personal style, especially with sort of public work. If you're doing your work work, obviously functionality is the of the highest importance, right? You want to get out of the way of the data as much as possible. And in the same way with your creative work, you're trying to do the same thing, but also be expressive to a degree. So you're making right. choices that you wouldn't make at work with like, you know, bright pink font on the top of back background, which obviously draws <laughs> the eye more than if you were doing a standard business dashboard. But um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the charts themselves are sort of violating any best practices. And there was a really great um, balance of this at last year's Tableau Cons, which we're on the precipice of this year's, uh, when Chantilly Jagernoff did an amazing session on sort of mm -hmm. the best practice for how to, you know, put together world-class business dashboards. And Mike Cisneros and Lilac Mannheim said, this is how you get attention. And the two of those theories may be in conflict, but not necessarily, because that's what I see in work like yours. You're taking both of those approaches simultaneously. And while that may not work on your work product necessarily, it can definitely work in stuff that's meant to be sort of evangelical outside of work and, you know, grab eyes and pull people in. Yeah, um, I, I love that you said that. And now it's like, it's funny. I see you have my visas pulled up on the screen and the themes that I noticed that you have white, black pops of color. And I, I sometimes I don't normally take a step back and, and look at things. <laughs> I'm always creating, I'm always trying to put things together. So I appreciate that that comes through that perspective that I carry does come. Uh, it's oftentimes you don't recognize it until you look at it from a 10,000 foot view. And I will be uh, just dir totally direct with you. I know you and I were both working on our iron viz entries around the mm -hmm. same time. You were sort of dealing with sort of natural supplements and stuff as sort of a tangent from your service in the Navy of having to stay up like long hours and having, you know, having to be very careful about what you put in your body. And for me, I sort of did my, my uh, twist on representation dealing with sort of how black comic book characters became more prevalent over time as a result of more black creators entering in. And I created this, uh, one of my first long long form visits, which I typically avoid. And somehow I never looked at the entire thing at once until I was almost done. So I, I had the whole thing in my head designed out, but I never actually exported the image to see what it looked like. And thank God it looked <laughs> kind of like, like what I wanted it to look like. But I mean, you were saying that about your portfolio and I'm like, yeah, it's like, it's very easy to be myopic and focus on pieces and not the bigger picture. And like, like with an individual project or your portfolio, you might start to notice trends over time as you sort of take that 10,000 foot view going back to our maps from the beginning and just sort of see it all at once.
Yeah, absolutely. I, and by the way, I do love that viz. It, it's I'm surprised that it you didn't look at it because it looked it fits together pretty seamless. I mean, I think a lot of that was was luck. I mean, I made some some very very interesting design choices, and one of the choices I wanted was to sort of have these wraps of color that sweep across the page, but then at the bottom, for the top part of the page to be mostly a white background with the colors, and then the bottom part to transition into black. As we discussed the idea of printing and sort of and um, authentically creating the colors. So like with the printing process, CMY, they were able to use cyan, magenta, and yellow to create almost any color, but they could only sort of achieve a really dark gray. So it was almost as I was sort of researching all of these ideas at the same time, I was like, well, that's very interesting because, you know, Stanley and Jack Kirby, you know, two really cool creators um, could create the Black Panther, who's seen as this amazing cultural icon, but could the Black Panther really be that authentic until there were like black creators involved in the process? Because it'd be very difficult for them to like really get their fingers in the experience and understand. Like I, I can't understand what it's like to be a woman. I would have a lot of trouble writing like as a female character. So um, I was sort of think- thinking about that and how, you know, it took adding black to the printing process. Like, oh, hey, now we can actually achieve black as, as a color. Like before we we're only approximating it. It's crazy how that wasn't a consideration from the beginning, you know, is like if you were coming from a perspective of diversity and thinking in that way, you would naturally be thinking like, I sure wish we could do black, like because we'll need it for those type of characters. I love seeing like how something as small as that, like a decision or a new way of doing something has been a touchstone. You know, you still have people um, like who uh, have Wakanda forever and their Twitter bios. And there's something about the Black Panther movie, the movie and the Black Panther character um, that worked for so many young black boys and girls and be able to see that representation. And it all was just because of color. It's fascinating. I, I mean, it's for me, like I was just happy to make that viz to discover the stories myself, like to sort of put mm. all of that together because it was a bunch of concepts I wouldn't have otherwise connected. And I'm just happy to have done that for myself and even it's like it was like a 30 hour project you know i i never put that much work into a viz but i'm glad i did just for the experience of having done it and that was I, worth worth it all i love it's like you bring people on the journey of that learning that you had and i love that about your visits that they bring people along with them that's something i love about i i try to be a little bit editorial and insert myself when i can or alternatively insert the reader, which is often more effective. If I can find a way to bring a person into the viz and make the story about them or alternatively make the story about me, then it sort of becomes more interesting than just the story. Oftentimes, even if I have to like make editorial notes, like that there's a problem with the data source, I try to have a little fun with it because it's very easy to sort of be staid and scientific and dry, but I'm not writing, you know, scientific papers. I'm talking about movies. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because that is pretty much the opposite of what I do. I'm very detached, I think, um, in, in my visualization. It's not often, I think with the exception of maybe Invis, that I'm inserting myself into the work. And I think that probably does come from my military experience where I was in charge of reporting as intelligence analysts are required to do the analysis and then report on our findings. Um, and we weren't up there to tell a story. We were to make sure that, you, um, so I love, and there's, that's why I also love um, our community in the Tableau community specifically is there's so many great storytellers, I think in the Tableau community that like, 
I'm in, it's fun to through people's visits, new things. Um, and you're able to go along with some of these great people. I mean, I think you nailed it right there. So uh, with that, we're at about time to wrap up. Um, is there anyone you want to shout out or anything you'd like to promote or say before we finish today? There's nothing that I would like to promote or say, um, but I do want to shout out one person in the, the community. I never thought that I would have an opportunity to shout out someone, um, but there, Adam McCann um, in the Tableau community, uh, his work that he he's done on Tableau has been such a huge inspiration to me and in understanding like what's the possibilities there on Tableau that I would feel remiss having a public opportunity and not being able to shout him out to not do so. so. It's going out to you, Adam. Thanks for all you've done. And with that, um, thanks for coming on, man. Let's do this again soon. I appreciate it. Thank you, Zach. Data Plus Love is recorded and produced by Zach Bowders. Our music track is We Are Legends by Alex Stoner. Hey, you're still here? Um, you're probably waiting for like the next podcast uh, to kick in, probably something better. Um, thanks for hanging on. Anyway, if you're picking up what we're putting down, uh, consider buying us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash D-A-T-A-P-L-U-S-L-O-V-E. Um, just, you know, drop $3 in our tip bucket. It helps us buy better equipment. It helps us uh, pay for razor blades to keep me from looking like a wolf man. And it keeps uh, Mark's head looking so shiny and beautiful. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll never put anything behind a paywall. And thanks for your patronage. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you can get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one. You won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.